Good morning. Our next case is State v. Beck. We will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices, and may it please the Court. My name is Rob Ennis, and I represent the State in this matter, as both the appellant and the appellee in this case. I plan to address both the appellant and appellee issues, but would like to reserve eight minutes for rebuttal, please. <clears throat> the case is before the Court based on the State's appeal as of right from the dissenting opinion at the Court of Appeals on the issue of whether the evidence was sufficient to send two separate conspiracy charges to the jury. The case is also before the Court based on this Court having granted the defendant's petition seeking discretionary review of the issue of whether the Court of Appeals erred by not remanding for resentencing the undisturbed armed robbery conviction that the trial court had consolidated for judgment with the conspiracy for armed robbery conviction that the Court of Appeals had remanded, had vacated on appeal. <clears throat> um, so turning to the first merits issue, the Court of Appeals in this case, its decision should be reversed for several reasons. Primarily, um, the Court of Appeals appears to have not properly applied the correct review standard in assessing the sufficiency of evidence to send charges to the jury. Um, under this court's well-settled precedent, the standard of review when on a motion to dismiss for insufficiency of the evidence, all of the evidence must be viewed in the light most favorable to the state, giving the state the benefit of all reasonable inferences and any contradictions in its favor. On the issue of whether the evidence was sufficient to send one or two conspiracies to the jury, this court has instructed in Toronto and in, in Stimson, which this court affirmed per curiam, the Court of Appeals decision in Stimson, um, that this principle applies when assessing the question of whether the evidence was sufficient to send one or two conspiracies to the jury. Um, conspiracy is a unique inchoate offense. Unlike attempt and solicitation, it does not merge into the completed offense. Um, conspiracy is a separate conviction for which a defendant can be punished separately for conspiracy and the completed offense. Um, ordinarily, it's challenging for the state to prove um, the scope of an agreement, criminal conspiracy, of course, being an agreement from with the defendant and another person to commit um, an unlawful act or to commit a lawful act unlawfully. Here, we're only concerned with the first prong of that. Um, but conspiracy is unique in that the crime is complete upon agreement. The actus reus of the crime is the agreement itself. And so the agreement is really what dictates um, this, whether there's one or two or multiple conspiracies. Um, and in this court's precedents established that when we have a situation like here, where there's evidence defining the scope of the agreement the first agreement and the scope of the second agreement, um, then the question of whether there's one or two conspiracies is, is really not all that challenging. And what I mean by that, I guess, is um, we have direct evidence here and circumstantial evidence that establishes the very first agreement reach and therefore the first conspiracy completed um, did not encompass the separate crime of committing felony breaking or entering. Whereas the second agreement reached the rational jury could infer, viewing the evidence in light most favorable to the state, that the defendant had to reach a separate agreement to commit breaking or entering um, that had not been conspired the first time. Uh, this case, as uh, identified in the state's briefs in this case, is indistinguishable from this court's decision in Gibbs. Um, in Gibbs, this court held that a trial court does not err by sending two conspiracy charges to the jury four separate crimes if a rational juror could infer that the defendant entered into two separate agreements um, that encompassed different offenses. And so in Gibbs, just a real quick um, summary of the case there, the defendant, his girlfriend Gay, and uh, his girlfriend's twin sister Doris entered into an agreement to murder the Ferrises. 
And at the time they entered into the agreement, the conspiracy was complete, and the separate crime of committing first-degree burglary against the Ferrises was not included in the scope of that first agreement. It was only a few weeks later that the defendant and Gay alone, as they were traveling to the Ferris's house in order to perpetrate the planned murders, this court concluded there was substantial evidence from which a rational juror could infer by their conduct that they entered into a new separate conspiracy to commit breaking, I mean, to commit first degree burglary. Um, and that's, so this court's decision in Gibbs was really founded on two, two three basic principles. The first is, there was substantial evidence that there were two separate agreements. The first agreement was um, separated in time by a few weeks, I think two or three weeks. The second is that the scope of the first agreement at the time the conspiracy was complete did not include the separate crime of first degree burglary. It only included the conspiracy to commit murder. And the third major point for this court's decision in Gibbs was that the co-conspirator Doris was charged with conspiracy to commit murder, but she was not charged with conspiracy to commit first degree burglary. Um, and that's exactly what we have in this case. In this case, there's sufficient evidence to show that the very first, well, the, the first agreement reached for purposes of this analysis, we can say at the latest was among the defendant, Silva, Holloway, and Baker to commit armed robbery against Bershears and Trevet. And at the time that that first agreement was reached, there was no evidence that there was a, that the, the crime encompassed, that the agreement encompassed the separate crime of committing breaking or entering. Indeed, Baker's testimony suggests that the initial plan, the defendant, Silva and Holloway, did not intend to go to Bershear's house, um, but they wanted to meet somewhere else. And so under Gibbs, because the first agreement reached when the first conspiracy offense was completed, did not encompass the separate crime of breaking or entering, um, but the substantial evidence of the defendant's conducts leading up to the actual target, the completion of the target crime, um, it, a rational juror could infer that a new agreement had to be reached that involved now the separate crime of breaking and entering into Brashear's apartment, even if that agreement was reached in furtherance of the first conspiracy or that target crime was perpetrated in order to um, accomplish the criminal objective of the first agreement and conspiracy. And so that's exactly what happened in this case. And so um, for those reasons, for that, for that main reason, the Court of Appeals opinion should be reversed because it conflicts with this court's decision in Gibbs. Um, the Can I ask you a question? Like sometimes there's, um, you know, there, there's these heist movies where, um, these criminals have come up with a really, although they're the protagonists of the movie, but they come up with these really complicated plans to steal something. And then it all kind of goes wrong as they're trying to, and so they come up with a bunch of other ways that ultimately still get to the end goal of, you know, stealing whatever it is, but they've committed a bunch of other crimes along the way. I mean, so in your view with the interpretation you're saying this court has taken, you know, what, what if they're very chatty and let's say they're being recorded, so you have an agreement on the front end to come up with some plan and then as things change, they're, instead of you know, breaking into this building, they steal this delivery truck and they do this. Are you gonna end up with, in a case like that, under our state law, 50 separate conspiracies? Is that your view of how uh, that works? So Your Honor, I guess it, it just depends on what, what the evidence shows the scope of the initial agreement was versus um, what, what second or third or other agreements would be. So if the scope of the first agreement was just to rob Bob, um, and then they later come together and decide that they have to commit mail fraud in order to complete the crime of murdering Bob, um, then that would be a separate conspiracy. Um, I guess my, my understanding of this court's case law is that it's, it's, the, it's separate conspiracies that encompass different crimes. So the, the crime is the conspiracy, it's the agreement to commit an unlawful act. And so each time an agreement is made to commit an unlawful act, unlawful act, um, I think the only uh, limiting principle, I guess, would be if it was a situation like a continuing conspiracy, like what the Court of Appeals here kind of concluded, um, that there was one continuing conspiracy. The, the Court of Appeals' reliance on the cases it cited, though, are misplaced for one simple reason, in that in those cases, they were conspiracies to commit the same crime. 
So Rozier, for instance, was a big case that the Court of Appeals here relied on. In that case, Rozier, the Court of Appeals panel said the first agreement was to, in that case, uh, you know, there was an initial agreement for the defendants to sell four ounces of cocaine to an undercover officer. Um, on June 6th, I think it was, they sold only one ounce and they said to the officer, okay, the rest is coming soon. And then on June 15th, they sold the remaining three ounces. And in that situation, the defendant was charged with conspiracy to traffic in cocaine um, on both of those dates that he sold and, and transferred the cocaine to the officer. The Court of Appeals determined um, that that was really just one agreement to sell four ounces of cocaine to the officer. And so it vacated the second um, conspiracy on the basis that that was just a continuation of the very first agreement to sell four ounces of cocaine. Um, that's not what happened in this case. In this case, we have different crimes that are being agreed to. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that would be one main reason why the Court of Appeals decision is wrong and conflicts with this court's decisions in Gibbs and Gay. And then, um, I, you know, Torado and Stimson are also illustrative in that in those cases, again, reemphasizing the idea that even if this were a close case, um, the issues should be submitted to the jury. If, there, if it's a question as to whether there's one single conspiracy or multiple conspiracies, um, this court has expressed its preference to submit the issues to the jury. Well, and counselor, along that line of discussion, uh, the way I'm, uh, at least it appears in uh, this case, uh, that the Court of Appeals felt very bound by its own decision in Beck because there was the same objective involved. Could you comment specifically on that case since that appeared to have been very uh, uh, determinative for, for the Court of Appeals? I'm um, sure, Your Honor. And could you just clarify what case in particular? Uh, the Fink, Fink case. Oh, Fink? Yes, okay. um, because uh, I believe the language is something along the lines of if the objective is the same, and I think that is in line with some of the other cases you were talking about, but I know that that was uh, very uh, inform. It, it appeared to inform the court's decision, the Court of Appeals' decision. So if you could make a comment about that, I would appreciate it. Sure, Justice Berenger. Um, yeah, so that, that does go in line kind of with what I was saying. All the cases the Court of Appeals relied on, including Fink, were situations in which there was conspiracy to commit the same crime. Um, in Fink, I think it was conspiracies to commit armed robbery against the same person. There was an attempt on one day, the plan was thwarted by police, and then they came together and tried to rob the person again the second day. Um, the defendant was convicted of two conspiracies to rob the same person, and the Court of Appeals determined that that was just one continuing conspiracy to rob this person. Um, and the criminal objective, I guess, was the same to rob the person. I guess a difference with Fink, and, and I could actually be mistaken, that could be Medlin, and, and I apologize if it is, um, but Fink, it, it would be the same thing in which there was two, uh, it was an agreement to commit the same crime. Um, but yeah, so the criminal objective part, I guess, uh, I, I think the, the Court of Appeals did find that that was very persuasive, but under this court's decision in Toronto, for instance, um, that's just one of several factors that should be weighed in determining whether or not the evidence is sufficient to send multiple conspiracy charges to the jury. Um, I think Toronto, Toronto lists, it lists the objective of the conspiracies. Um, and in this case, you know, we can say the first agreement, the objective was the armed robbery of Brashears, and the second agreement, the objective was to break and enter into her apartment. Um, but so objective conspiracies is one, the time interval between them, number of participants, number of meetings, and the nature of the agreement or agreements. Those are the factors that Toronto identified as um, things that a jury can consider as to whether or not the evidence showed one conspiracy or multiple conspiracies. Um, so the Court of Appeals here seemed to place an undue emphasis, I suppose, on the criminal objective part of it. Um, well, and, and just one follow-up, uh, and it really relates to the hypothetical that Justice Dietz posed. Uh, one way, or at least the way I perceive that uh, the Court of Appeals was looking <clears throat> at this situation is there was a, uh, an overarching objective to, to rob. And as a result of changed circumstances, the breaking and entering actually <clears throat> uh, caused that um, to be, move forward. It became necessary so that they could rob them, they would have to break and enter. Could you um, uh, comment on, on that 
that position, as I said, as, as it appears in the Court of Appeals. Sure, Justice Berenger, and, and I think that kind of goes back to um, what I was trying to at least express with this court's decisions in Gibbs and Gay. Just as in Gibbs and Gay, the overarching conspiracy, if you were to use it in those terms, I guess, would, were to, to murder the Ferris family. Um, but still, there was a separate conspiracy that had to be hatched, which was um, committing first-degree burglary in order to perpetrate those murders. Um, just like in this case, if the overarching conspiracy was the armed robbery of Brashears and Trevette, there's still circumstantial evidence to show that they had to have come together and entered a different agreement to commit breaking or entering in order to perpetrate the um, goals of the, uh, the target crime of the first conspiracy. Um, in, in a lot of cases, too, we don't have the benefit of um, direct evidence defining the nature and scope of the agreement which really that's the essence of the crime of conspiracy um, under this court's law and, and uh, the, well, conspiracy is a common law offense and how the offense kind of developed um, in North Carolina. It's, it's the agreement that's the actus reus. And so that's the thing that really makes, um, it, it's the most defining feature of the crime. And so in this case, we're lucky in that we have a co-conspirator who was able to provide us and we also have text messages um, and the victim herself who were able to give us enough information that we could kind of define the scope of what the initial agreement was, um, which, which did not include the separate crime of breaking or entering. The circumstantial evidence that when Silva arrived at the parking lot, after he called Bershears um, and hung up, he immediately drove away. And then Bershears is texting Silva saying, oh, I could have come down if you want. I just wanted to weigh the drugs in front of you. It, it, a reasonable juror could infer that the original plan was for Brashears to come down to the parking lot where they would conduct this pseudo drug deal in order to rob her. And it didn't involve committing the separate crime of breaking or entering. But then after 30 minutes of Silva driving around, he eventually returns to Brashears apartment. A rational juror could presume that within those 30 minutes, they were trying to figure out, you know, how they can go about, I guess, accomplishing the purpose of the first agreement. Um, and just like in Gibbs and Gay, it's circumstantial evidence that they had to reach another agreement um, to commit a crime, even if it was the sole purpose of it was in furtherance of the criminal objective of the first conspiracy. Thank you. So, so just out of curiosity, how would you uh, analyze this if, if, for example, the evidence showed that the co-conspirators, what they agreed to was, we're going to rob uh, Bashirs and Trevette no matter what we have to do. Well, that would raise an interesting, that would, that we'd be in a different position, I guess, um, but that would raise an interesting question. I, I would say that that would still just be one conspiracy to commit robbery. Um, it's so, so that, in your view, wouldn't change the, our analysis, if that? Uh, no, I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because in this court's decision in Gibbs and Gay, they, this court specifically identified the fact that at the time the agreement was reached among Gibbs, Gay, and Doris to murder the Ferrises, it was a non-specific plan. They didn't have any idea how they were going to do it. Um, but regardless, this court said the crime of conspiracy to commit murder was complete at that time. North Carolina doesn't require an overt act like other jurisdictions, and I think the model penal code does. Even still, the overt act requirement, typically it can be satisfied by um, a very minor step that's not comparable to the substantial step usually required for an attempt. For instance, in this case, uh, if we did have an overt act requirement, which again, we don't, the act of the defendant getting into the car with Silva and Holloway and then driving to Boone as the texts indicated their plan was to commit armed robbery in Boone the next day could be considered a substantial step. Um, in, in the formation of conspiracy. That's why I used that as kind of the, um, an, an example of when one agreement was formed uh, and then a, another agreement was formed when Baker became a participant of the conspiracy and they actually identified the victims um, who they were going to rob. <clears throat> uh, and then, as I said before, there was another implied agreement that was formed among, Baker was not a participant to it. So, so just like in Gibbs and Gay where Doris was uh, charged with conspiracy to commit murder, but not conspiracy to commit um, first degree burglary. Baker here was 
charged only with conspiracy to commit armed robbery and not conspiracy to commit the breaking or entering. Um, and Baker's testimony also gives inferences that he, I think he said that he initially lied to police because I think his words were, um, I wasn't sure how I would be affected by the decisions that were made at the end of the process from which a rational juror could infer that Baker wasn't involved in the um, agreement to commit breaking or entering in order to perpetrate the robberies. Um, and there's, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but if I can just follow up on that hypothetical, and I know it's not the facts here, but if, if the initial agreement had been that we're going to commit armed robbery and we're going to break into the apartment to do it, is that two conspiracies? Well, Your Honor, um, I hesitate only because this court's decision in, I think it's pronounced GEL, G-E-L-L, that's cited in the state's brief. In that case, the evidence seemed to indicate that at the very same time, the defendant and his co-conspirators had agreed to murder and rob the victim. And then during the same transaction, they had murdered and robbed the victim, and he was convicted of both conspiracy to murder and conspiracy to rob. On review, this court determined the evidence was sufficient to sustain both conspiracies. Um, so, so that's why I hesitate when I answer your question, uh, because it seems like under gel or gel, however you pronounce it, that that perhaps still would be two um, separate conspiracies. But... So then why would we even have the Toronto factors that we're supposed to evaluate to determine whether or not there are two separate agreements? Why would it even matter? You're right, Your Honor. And, and so I, I, would, I would say that probably Toronto's analysis um, would control over gels or gels, which, which occurred prior to that. Um, and Toronto also was citing Court of Appeals cases, which had more experience um, analyzing these issues than I think this court may have just by virtue of the number of cases that get appealed to the Court of Appeals. Um, and so, yeah, under Toronto, the focus is more on the totality of the circumstances using those factors I mentioned before, like the number of participants, the time, the criminal objectives, uh, the number of meetings and things like that. Um, but still, it, it, when we have a situation where there's a defined agreement, we know the parties privy to it, and we know what crimes are encompassed in that agreement. That kind of informs um, whether a second agreement would constitute a separate conspiracy or not, as this court determined in um, Gibbs and Gay, and which is kind of what we have here. Um, <clears throat> and so I'll um, discuss a little bit, I get just, if there are no further questions about um, the first issue, I guess, so just to sum up, the Court of Appeals in this case erred because it didn't really view the evidence in the light most favorable to the state as it's supposed to have done when reviewing motions to dismiss for insufficiency of the evidence. Um, when, when it's viewed properly like that, there's sufficient evidence to show that the defendant entered into two separate agreements at separate times with different parties that encompass different crimes. And under this court's decision in Gibbs and Gay, that's sufficient to send both conspiracy charges to the jury. Um, and in this case, both conspiracy charges to the jury were sent, uh, they were instructed that in order to find him guilty of conspiracy with armed robbery, you have to find he entered into an agreement with others to commit armed robbery. And they were instructed that to find whether he conspired with others to commit the crime of breaking or entering. Um, and the jury found both, um, the defendant was guilty of both of those offenses. Uh, so yeah, um, if there are no further questions, I guess I'll just briefly uh, talk about the petition for discretionary review issue with fair sentencing. Um, and as an initial matter, if this court agrees with the state that the evidence was sufficient to send both charges to the jury, it need not address this issue as to what the proper appellate remedy would be um, but let me back up, I guess, that one other thing I want to talk about. If this court does conclude that there was evidence of only a single conspiracy, um, and the Court of Appeals erred by deciding which conspiracy to sustain and which conspiracy to set aside. Um, there's, it, it's interesting with the Court of Appeals' opinion, I think three or four times they describe the evidence as showing uh, conspiracy to commit armed robbery against Brashears and Trevet. And they say, oh, the agreement to break and enter didn't convert the original conspiracy into a new conspiracy or a separate conspiracy. Um, so the Court of Appeals is kind of, 
interpreting the evidence to say if there was a single continuing conspiracy, it was the conspiracy to commit armed robbery. Yet the Court of Appeals still decided to vacate the conspiracy to commit armed robbery conviction on the sole basis that the defendant had perpetrated the substantive crime of breaking or entering immediately before he perpetrated the substantive crime of armed robbery. And under this court's precedence, uh, for instance, in State v. Arnold, decided in 92, and um, the conspiracy, the substantive charges, uh, crimes, whether they're committed or not, have no bearing on the conspiracy convictions. So it follows that whether the defendant committed one substantive crime before another or after another should have no bearing on the conspiracy convictions in this case. Um, and so if, if this court were to find there was one continuing conspiracy, which the state would uh, say that there was definitely substantial evidence to send both charges to the jury, then it should instead vacate the conviction for conspiracy to commit breaking or entering um, and not the conspiracy to commit armed robbery. And briefly with the Fair Sentencing Act uh, issue, the defendant here has the burden of showing the Court of Appeals erred by not remanding his undisturbed armed robbery conviction for resentencing. Um, the defendant has not satisfied that burden in this case. Um, there's a statute that, that grants the, the Court of Appeals uh, appellate court's authority uh, when granting relief to affirm one but not all charges in a judgment, and then if it finds it appropriate, affirm the sentence. So we have statutory authority for the Court of Appeals to do this, and the defendant has cited to no precedent from this court that uh, the Court of Appeals' decision not to remand the undisturbed armed robbery conviction for resentencing um, conflicts with. And so that's the defendant's burden to show, and it, he's relied on cases like Moore, Wortham, and Brown, and as explained in the state's appellee brief, those cases are distinguishable for the main reason that they were decided under the Fair Sentencing Act when consolidating convictions for judgment, each separate conviction could attribute to the overall length of the combined sentence imposed. Under structured sentencing, consolidated convictions cannot contribute to the overall sentence length imposed and sentence has to be imposed based solely on the most serious offense. If there's no further questions, I would like to reserve the remaining time for rebuttal, please. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Here from the FLE. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. Um, my name is Sterling Rozier. I'm with the Office of the Appellate Defender, and I represent Mr. Beck. And as the Kate, uh, the state mentioned, this case is somewhat complicated, so I will try to address both the FLE and appellant's argument, but I won't be reserving any time for rebuttal. Um, now, the state says that, that it's easy to figure out whether there was one or multiple conspiracies here, and I think that they're right about that. I think it's easy to find that there are there's a single conspiracy. All of the case law supports that conclusion. Um, there was a single conspiracy to rob a drug dealer. And the decision to break into the apartment in order to accomplish that goal does not change this into two separate conspiracies. Um, and the Court of Appeals majority correctly recognized this. Um, and applying the factors that are identified by this court, uh, which we have for a reason, right? If, if the state were correct, as I think Justice Earls asked, that, that every new agreement to commit another crime was a new conspiracy, then we wouldn't have cases like Rozier and Medlin and Wilson and Toronto. Toronto would be very short. Um, but instead, we have factors that we have to consider. Um, and, and the factors that we have to consider are the nature of the agreement and the objectives of the conspiracies, um, the time interval between them, the number of participants, and the number of meetings. And in this case, all of these point to the existence of a single agreement. And the most important of them is the objective. In other words, what was the plan, right? And it was a single plan to rob Bashirs. The decision to break in and into the apartment was just undertaken so that they could do that. And, and this is exactly what the Court of Appeals majority was talking about when it said that even though the robbery conspiracy evolved into a breaking and entering plot, the criminal purpose remained the same. And I, I think that listening to the state's argument, I heard them 
say a couple of times, you know, they, they, they were done with the robbery and then they formed a new plan to break and enter. And the question I have when I, I hear that sort of statement is, well, what did they break and enter to do? Right? They didn't break and enter just to smash into the house and then leave, right? They broke in so they could rob her. The whole point of all of this, all of these decisions, all of these actions was to accomplish this robbery. Um, and the state seemed to recognize this at trial, right? During closing, they referred to a plan, the plan, the agreement. They said this isn't something where they planned to do it, but something happened and they got stopped. They actually went in there and robbed her. So now the state argues that there was a second, uh, a second agreement because there was some sort of break in time, right, where, where they were thwarted from carrying out the robbery the way that they had planned it, um, and that, that this break in the plan was sufficient to make their sort of regrouping, their, their evolving plan a second agreement. But I disagree with that. I think this was a continuous interaction. From the moment Mr. Beck got involved on April 26th or 27th to the end of the robbery on April 27th, right, we're talking about a period of about a day and the time between Silva showing up in the parking lot and getting spooked and leaving and then coming back and going into the apartment was about 20 minutes. Right? That's not a significant break in the plan. Um, but even if it were, it's not, it's not dispositive because of the other factors. Um, you would have to consider what kind of breaks were present in other cases. And, and in Lawrence, you have a plan to rob a drug dealer that gets thwarted because the neighbors uh, spook the, the conspirators and they leave and they come back and they get a new person involved. At that point, they, they get the defendant involved and then the police are called and they flee again. And some 36 hours later, they come back with sort of their final attempt. And all of that was a single conspiracy. Um, Medlin involved several robberies over four months where they would complete a robbery and, and sit around and, and hand out the, the stuff they stole and, and then decide what their next robbery was gonna be. But again, that was a single conspiracy. Um, and, and Rozier, I, I don't know if it's Rozier or, or Rozier and uh, no relation, um, but, uh, but Rozier involved two drug deals over six days, right? And, and the first was thwarted because they, they weren't able to sell as much of the drugs that they wanted, um, but it was still a single conspiracy. Um, and, and I think this really goes to show that, you know, not only does an agreement to commit a, another crime or an additional crime change it into, into multiple conspiracies, but that um, what we really look at of all of these factors, the most important one is what were the objectives? Um, what, why isn't Gibbs controlling? I think that Gibbs is distinguishable um, because, uh, Your Honor, of, of some of the things that the state um, highlights in Gibbs, and I apologize, I'm trying to find my notes um, on Gibbs here, but, but as the state says, all of the participants um, in the former conspiracy did not agree to the separate conspiracy um, in Gibbs. And, and I think the state and I disagree about about whether all of the participants in the proposed, uh, purported former conspiracy and the subsequent one agree. Because I think our case law is pretty clear that when you're deciding whether there are one or more agreements, you look at the indictments. And, and the state talks a lot about what Baker was charged with, but what matters um, uh, under, under Griffin and, and Rozier are, are who, who was the defendant? Right, what do the indictments say Mr. Beck conspired with? And in the indictments in our case, for both conspiracies, he was, he was charged with conspiring with Holloway and Silva. And those don't change throughout. Um, and then Baker, or excuse me, Gibbs also has that week, uh, weeks later, right? They, they originally decide uh, between Gibbs and Gay and Doris that they're going to commit a murder and then weeks later, two of them decided, okay, it's time to do the murder. Now we're gonna do this, this, here's how we're gonna do it. And I think that based on the totality of the circumstances in, in that case, those factors 
show the existence of separate conspiracies, but that's not what we have here. We have basically one ongoing meeting between these people, right? They, it, it appears that they pick back up on the 27th or, or maybe the 26th and they drive to Boone to do this robbery. And they're together at all times while they're doing it. Um, it you know, it's, it's a day or two at most, it's not weeks. Um, and then I guess the final thing I'd say about Gibbs and, and Gay is that they were decided before Toronto. And I think that Toronto really sort of crystallized the factors that we're supposed to be looking at. Um, but while we're talking about the state's cases that they rely on, I think it, it is, it's important to also consider the other cases that they cite, um, Stimson and Toronto. And I think that the, the, the cases that the state cites with, with Gay and Stimson and Serato, they are very illustrative, but they are illustrative by how different they are from the facts of our case. In Stimson, for example, there was no overarching agreement, right? There was no plan to commit a robbery as there was here. In Stimson, the Court of Appeals said the victims and crimes committed arose at random and by pure opportunity. And that, so that would be like if, if they conspired to rob this drug dealer and show up in the apartment and then saw somebody walking across the street and said, oh, well, let's go rob them too while we're here. Right? That might be, under Stimson, uh, a second conspiracy, but that's not what we're dealing with. Um, and Toronto, and the facts of Toronto are, are wild and, and terrible and nothing like what we're dealing with. And, and to sum it up very briefly, you had, you had various gang members agreeing to steal cars and then kill the owners of the car and then go out and steal another car and then uh, kill the owners of, of the other car and drive evidence to different places. And, and this court noted it's a series of meetings, a variety of locations and participants and different objectives that showed that in, in Toronto it was multiple conspiracies. And, and again, that just isn't what we have here. We have the same three people trying to rob a drug dealer and deciding to break into the house when that was how they, they had to accomplish uh, that offense. Uh, and Counselor, could you clarify for me, um, and perhaps it goes back to your point about indictments, uh, I believe I understood um, the, uh, your friend on the other side to say that what one of the factors uh, involved is the fact that um, everyone was not convicted of the same same crime, that there were differences in that regard. Uh, and so how, how do you reconcile that? Uh, well, well, two points. I, I think that what you're, you're referring to is, is the question of whether Baker, um, the, the, the person who I think lived in Boone, who the, the other three, the three charged conspirators in this case, the three who I say are relevant, Silva, Holloway, and Beck, they contacted Baker, they said, hey, we're trying to do a robbery, do you know a drug dealer, can you set something up for us? Um, he, he is not named in the indictments here, and I think that under the case law, it, it is clear that you, you look at who the defendants are accused of conspiring with and deciding whether the evidence is sufficient. In fact, there, there, are, um, there are cases where um, the state, uh, I, I believe it's, it's Fink, where, where the state is, is or sorry, it's Griffin, excuse me, um, where, where they're trying to do a drug deal, uh, they're smuggling drugs into a prison. Um, and there are apparently multiple people involved in this, multiple people bring the drugs in, multiple prisoners receiving the drugs. And, and in Griffin, um, the court said, you know, the state is talking about other people who are unnamed co-conspirators and, and saying that their participation changes this. And the, and the court says that you have to look at the indictments. The, the indictments under which defendant was tried all allege the same co-conspirators. And, and so that's what we have here. And so I, I, we say that Baker doesn't, doesn't matter here. But um, even, if, even if he did, uh, or, or even if he was a conspirator, if we sort of credit that, um, the mere fact that, that multiple um, 
that, that a member, members of the conspiracy may vary occasionally doesn't change this into multiple conspiracies. And again, that's, that's from Griffin. A single conspiracy is not transformed into multiple conspiracies simply because its members vary occasionally. Um, and uh, I, I, there was a point that I wanted to make, um, I apologize, I can't remember whose question it was, but about whether just the, the commission of a second crime changes it into a multiple, cons uh, a multiple conspiracies on its own. Um, and I've already addressed that a little bit, but I did want to remind this court of, of the quote in Braverman um, versus the United States from the US Supreme Court that says that the one agreement cannot be taken to be several agreements and hence several conspiracies because it envisages it envisages the violation of several statutes rather than one. Um, so no, just agreeing to commit multiple offenses does not on its own um, change the nature or the objective of the conspiracy. Um, Your honors, as to, um, unless you have further questions, I'm gonna try to shift to the appellant's argument um, since we're getting a little bit low, I'm still happy to talk about whatever if you do have any questions. Um, but but the, the important question, I think, in this case, because I, I agree with the state, it's easy. There, there was a single conspiracy, and the Court of Appeals majority got it right there. But then it brings us to this question of, well, what do we do? When you have multiple convictions that are consolidated for judgment, and you vacate some but not all, what do you do with the surviving conviction? And for years, the answer has been to remand the surviving conviction for resentencing. And the Court of Appeals didn't do that here. And, and this is the part uh, where the Court of Appeals got it wrong, because the lower court ignored established precedent. Um, and, and the state not only now argues that this remedy was proper, but it wants this court to announce a ruling that would upend four decades of precedent and practice and contradict legislative acquiescence and contradict this, the position that the state itself has taken consistently in other cases up until, I think, this brief for the past four decades. And, and it also ignores reason. And in support of this surprising position, the state doesn't really tell us much. Um, we've described in our brief the Wortham Rule. I don't know that it's gonna help to get into the history of all of that. I, I certainly am not gonna be able to do it as well as we did in the brief, but, but to rebut all of that history, the state, at least in its brief, tells you that, well, Wortham was decided under fair sentencing and is no longer relevant um, because when the General Assembly enacted the Structured Sentencing Act, according to the state, they overruled Wortham. And this is surprising because if it's true, nobody told the Court of Appeals that. They continue to apply Wortham. And nobody told the state because they continue to argue that it was, it's applicable. And, and they haven't brought it to this court's attention before. This court has, has not recognized the argument that the state's position um, is, is requesting. And, and structured sentencing became the law in 1994. So in, in three decades since structured sentencing supposedly overruled Wortham, nobody knew it. And the reason is because it didn't happen. And, and the, the one key flaw, I think, to the state's argument, despite everything that they, they cite, it really all comes down to discretion. Right? And, and they, they essentially argue that there was discretion under fair sentencing and there is no longer discretion under structured sentencing and, and therefore the whole Wortham rule and its premise no longer apply. Um, but there is discretion under structured sentencing and, and you only have to look at uh, General Statute 15A 1340.17C and the sentencing grid and you'll see when, when when Im, uh, imposing a consolidated conviction for multiple offenses, you identify the prior record level of the defendant and you identify the class of the felony for the most serious offense. And, and where those meet, you see a series of boxes with six pair or three pairs of numbers joined by a dash, right? And that dash is discretion because a judge, after they've identified the appropriate box for the most serious offense, 
gets to pick any number in that range, the low end or the high end or anywhere in between, and impose a sentence. And there is nothing in the statute or in the case law that the state cites that says that a trial court is not allowed to consider factors such as the seriousness of offense, the number of offenses committed, the, the prior record level. There's nothing that prevents a judge from deciding, I'm going to impose a sentence at the upper end of the presumptive in light of the facts of this case, including the fact that, that we have uh, this number of convictions. Um, and, and certainly, the, the statutes don't say that, and, and Tucker doesn't say that, uh, which is what the state really points to to, to make this, this argument. And I, I think it's important to, to sort of look back and or step back and consider what the state is really arguing for here. Um, because again, they're saying that 30 years ago, the legislature created a law making it illegal for a sentencing judge to consider consolidated offenses when choosing a minimum term. And, and as I've, I've already said twice, I think now, the, the number of cases that continue to apply Wortham, and anecdotally, the number of instances where a prosecutor will say, Your Honor, we agree to consolidated sentences, but given you know, that this was a crime spree and the number of sentences we'd like something at the top of the presumptive, or the number of times a judge says something similar, I think that, that it is common practice in this state for uh, this to happen. It would come as a shock to the bar to learn that it is unlawful for a judge to consider consolidated sentences when imposing a, a, a sentence. And again, um, the legislature has seen the Court of Appeals continue to apply the Wortham Rule, and when doing it, announcing we cannot say that the same sentence would be imposed if there had been fewer consolidated convictions, um, and the legislature hasn't acted. Um, and so the state wants this court to announce that for 30 years we have been posing, imposing potentially unlawful sentences. And, uh, you know, the post-conviction part of me um, rejoices at hearing that there may be a new discovery that there are 30 years of unlawful sentences. But but it, it, it is wrong, right? It, this did not happen. The state's argument is unsupported by, by all of the things that we've talked about. Right? Consider the exceptions um, uh, to the rule, right? I mean, this rule is, is, is very well established. And, and the, you know, the only time that we don't apply the Wortham Rule is where the defendant received the lowest possible sentence, right? The bottom of the mitigated, or where the sentence was required by law, a, a life sentence for, um, you know, sentences where that's the lowest that it could be. Um, and, and again, so the exceptions just show the existence of the rule and its continued application. Um, and, and I think that th this court should reject the state's request for all the reasons that we've discussed below, but also be or before, but, but also because this court shouldn't step into the role of a sentencing judge. This court, the appellate courts in general, um, should not undertake that exercise of discretion that is reserved by statute for sentencing judges. It is, it is not the role of this court to look at a case and say, well, this sentence was imposed, but there was something wrong with it, so we're just gonna pick a new one that we think is right. Um, Your Honors, the, the decision to abandon Wortham was a mistake, and the state's request that this court not only affirm the mistake, but, but do it for reasons that, that weren't the Court of Appeals majority didn't abandon Wortham because of what the state has told you in its brief um, or what it, what it brought up today. Um, but, but to hold that, that Wortham was overruled by statute 30 years ago unbeknownst to everyone would be a mistake. Um, this court should recognize the discretion awarded to sentencing judges even under structured sentencing. Um, and if there are no further questions, uh, I would ask that this court affirm the Court of Appeals majority's holding that there was a single conspiracy. Let, let me very quickly ask you, um, what about the state's argument that um, if there were only one conspiracy, the COA found the wrong one? Yeah. It seems I've heard you argue uh, that the armed robbery was the overarching or the continuing conspiracy. Yes, Your Honor. Yeah, I, I, I think... I think the state's right. 
on that point. Um, I think that argument is not properly before this court. And if this court follows precedent as recently as two weeks ago in State v. McCoy, where it unanimously declined to address arguments that were briefed by parties because they weren't within the scope of the dissent, um, then this court would not address that argument as well. But having said that, yes, I, I think on, on that point and on that point alone, the state and I are in agreement. Um, are there any? No. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. Your Honors, um, just a few points um, that I wanted to address from my colleague. Um, he identified the fact that Baker wasn't identified in the indictments in this case. One reason that could be is because um, the defendant was indicted in September 2017 and Baker wasn't indicted until January 2018. That could be one reason why Baker was not in the defense indictments, for example. Um, but also there's no case law that says that the co-conspirator has to be in an indictment. And we see this from this court's decisions applying the co-conspirator exception to the hearsay, um, the general rule against hearsay, the uh, co-conspirator doesn't have to be identified in an indictment in order for um, he to be considered a co-conspirator under the law. <coughs> um, so as to the, the fair sentencing argument or the um, argument that's on discretionary review, it's not the state's burden um, to to establish that Wortham has been overruled or overturned. It's the defendant's burden to show that the Court of Appeals has erred. Um, so the defendant's suggestion that the state is asking for this court to do, to make some rule that seems so um, outlandish is really kind of misplaced because it's not the state's burden. It's, it's the defendant's burden to show error as the appellant in the Court of Appeals decision. And this, the defendant hasn't done so in this case. Um, the general rule is a defendant has to show prejudice before he's entitled to a new sentencing hearing. And we see that in cases like um, this court's decisions in State v. Norris or applying the Blakely um, rule. If a trial court improperly makes aggravating findings but still sentences in the presumptive range, the defendant isn't entitled to a new sentencing hearing where the trial court doesn't consider those aggravating findings that it found. Um, so the defendant's argument about the discretion afforded in selecting minimum ranges to the trial court, um, there's no other situation in which that's an automatic reversal if something occurs that you could say um, impacted the judge's discretion I mean, this sentencing decision, unless it's a situation in which uh, the record affirmatively shows that the trial court it considered an improper matter like the defendant's exercise of his right to a jury trial, that the presumption of regularity in a presumptive range sentence would be overcome. Um, and also, the legislature, legislature uh, has spoken on this. A defendant isn't entitled to appellate review of the issue of whether the trial and sentencing evidence is sufficient to support the sentence imposed if he is sentenced in the presumptive range. So the legislature contemplates not being able to challenge the particular minimum term a trial court selects, and for good reason, because that would be overstepping on the trial court's discretion. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Beth. And, thank you.